You are listening to the EFCA Theology Podcast, which exists to help pastors and church leaders stay passionate about the gospel and faithful to the scriptures. In 2008, the EFCA adopted an updated strengthened statement of faith. Following that update, the EFCA Spiritual Heritage Committee wrote the book Evangelical Convictions, an exposition of the statement of faith of the EFCA, to help pastors and church leaders better understand what we believe. On this episode of the podcast, Ruth Evans reads Chapter 5 of Evangelical Convictions. Ruth serves on the EFCA Board of Directors. Article 5, The Work of Christ We believe that Jesus Christ, as our representative and substitute, shed his blood on the cross as the perfect, all-sufficient sacrifice for our sins. His atoning death and victorious resurrection constitute the only ground for salvation. God's gospel is accomplished through the work of Christ. Our statement thus far has affirmed truths about the human condition and truths about God that when viewed together present an obvious problem. On the one hand, we have declared that human beings are sinners by nature and by choice, alienated from God and under his wrath. Article 3. We all stand in need of the restoration of our corrupt nature, reconciliation with our estranged creator, and rescue from the condemnation which our rebellion against God's rule richly deserves. Yet, we have also declared the gracious purpose of God from eternity to redeem a people for himself, allowing them to share in his own triune love. Article 1. That purpose was first glimpsed in God's pledge in the Garden of Eden, that from the seed of Eve would come one who would crush the head of the serpent. Genesis 3.15. It was revealed more clearly in God's promise to bless Abraham and through him to bring blessing to the world. Genesis 12, 1-3. The Old Testament story of Israel left little ground for hope. However, for Israel herself had rebelled against God and was in need of a Savior. In the light of our sinful condition, how is this purpose to be accomplished? Many would simply echo the words of the German poet and skeptic Henrik Hein, which he spoke as he lay on his deathbed. God will forgive me. That's his job. Isn't forgiveness God's duty, his obligation? Can't God simply forgive freely? But the Bible affirms that God is holy and just, which means that he cannot tolerate evil and must condemn all iniquity, acquitting the guilty and condemning the innocent. The Lord detests them both. Proverbs 17, 15. Because of his very nature, God's role as judge of all the earth demands the execution of justice. Evil must be seen to be evil, or cosmic justice will have no meaning. And without such a recognition, even our human dignity as responsible moral agents will be undermined. Mere forgiveness of sinful human beings apart from the exercise of the judgment due their sin would be a contradiction of God's character. The resolution of this theological dilemma and the core of the gospel is found in the work of Jesus Christ 
especially in the death of Christ on the cross. God's righteousness is revealed. A righteous hatred of sin and a righteous commitment to his covenant promise to bring blessing to the world. There, God's wrath is poured out and his love is demonstrated and he shows himself to be just even while justifying the sinner. Romans three twenty-five through 26. The institutions of Israel provides the categories by which to understand the work of Christ as he fulfills the roles of prophet, revealing the grace and truth of God as his perfect image, of priest, representing and redeeming a sinful people, and of king, exercising the authority of God in reigning over his creation. Our statement on the work of Christ focuses on his priestly role through which he effects our salvation by his atoning sacrifice on the cross. Roman numeral one. Of central importance, Jesus Christ shed his blood on the cross. The evangelists, in various ways, present the crucifixion of Jesus in Jerusalem as the focal point of the gospel story. Matthew and Mark follow a similar storyline. Matthew first alludes to the violent conflict to come in his narrative of the birth of Jesus when the wicked king Herod seeks to eliminate the one who is born king by murdering infants near Bethlehem. Matthew 2, 13-18. Then, as in Mark's gospel, early in his account of Jesus' ministry in Galilee, Matthew mentions the Pharisees' intention to kill Jesus. 12.14, cross-reference, Mark 3.6, setting the stage for what follows. After Peter's confession of Jesus' identity as the Son of God, Jesus explicitly declares that he must go to Jerusalem, where he will be killed. Matthew 16.21, cross-reference, Mark 8.31. A destiny reaffirmed twice, Matthew 17.22-23, through 2018, also 26.2, cross-reference, Mark 9.30-31 and 10.33. Indeed, Jesus goes to his death as the fulfillment of the divine purpose revealed in the scriptures, Matthew 26.24 and 54-56. In Luke, Jesus affirms his determination to face his death, Luke 9.22. Luke further tells us that Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem, 951, for no prophet can die outside of Jerusalem, chapter 13, verse 33. I have a baptism to undergo, Jesus declares, and how distressed I am until it is completed, chapter 12, verse 50. John emphasizes the centrality of Jesus' death by the repeated reference to Jesus' appointed hour. Three times we read that Jesus' hour has not yet come. John 2, 4 and chapter 7, verse 30, 8, verses 20, and cross-reference also chapter 7, 6, and 8. Then, As he enters Jerusalem for the last time and faces his certain death, Jesus declares, The hour has come for the Son of God to be glorified. Chapter 12, verse 23, also 17, verse 1. 
Jesus wrestles with the torment which this entails, but faces it faithfully. Now my heart is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. Chapter 12, verse 27. Jesus was born to die. His crucifixion by Pilate was not thrust upon him. He chose it as his divine vocation. John 10, 18. He was tempted to turn from such agony. And in the Garden of Gethsemane, he prayed, My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. Matthew twenty six thirty nine, But it was not possible, and Jesus willingly went to the cross. John records his dying words. It is finished. John nineteen thirty. Jesus had accomplished that for which the Father had sent him into the world. In their accounts of the ministry of Jesus, the gospel writers emphasized the centrality of the cross and the teaching of the apostles does the same. But why? What is the meaning of this cruel death? What did it accomplish? Fundamentally, as Israel's promised Messiah, the story of Jesus in the Gospels is seen as the fulfillment of Israel's story. Matthew 1, 1-17 As such, he is the means by which a sinful Israel can bring blessing to the world. Jesus accomplishes this by taking on the role of Daniel's son of man and the suffering servant described by the prophet Isaiah. He becomes the righteous one who bears the sins of his people, bringing forgiveness and restoration. Matthew one twenty one. Simply put, the New Testament proclaims that Jesus died for our sins. 1 Corinthians 15.3, Peter 3.18, Romans 3.25-26, and chapter 5, verse 8. Implying that Jesus' death provides the means by which our sins are forgiven or taken away. Ephesians 1.7 Jesus himself pointed his disciples in this direction, when he spoke of his ultimate act of service in terms of giving his life a ransom for many. Mark 10.45, Matthew 20, verse 28. This connection was confirmed during the Last Supper. In preparing his disciples for his imminent death, Jesus spoke of the cup as my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Matthew 26.28 this reference to blood signals a sacrificial significance to Jesus' death, especially since it was made at a meal which celebrated the saving work of God through the blood of the Passover lamb sprinkled on the doorposts of the families of Israel. Blood was a central aspect of the sacrifices prescribed in the Old Testament, Hebrews 9.22, as it testified to the life poured out in death, Leviticus 17.11. The blood of Jesus became a common way of speaking of Jesus' death as a saving sacrificial act. In Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, Paul writes in Ephesians 1.7 and 2.13, Colossians 1.20, and Romans 3.25 and 5.9.
John affirms that the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. 1 John 1, 7 and Revelation 1, 5 and 12, 11. And Peter speaks of our being ransomed with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without defect or blemish. 1 Peter 1, 19 and John 1, 29. In Hebrews, this theme is expounded in even greater detail. Hebrews 9, 10, cross-reference, especially 10, 19. Jesus' death must be seen as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Roman numeral 2, Christ's atoning death. The perfect, all-sufficient sacrifice for our sins. The New Testament description of Jesus' death as an atoning sacrifice finds its fullest expression in the epistle to the Hebrews. There, the Levitical priesthood and the temple worship provide the paradigm for understanding the work of Jesus. The Old Testament priests offered the same sacrifice year after year for themselves and for the people. The repetition of these offerings, however, bore witness to their ineffectiveness in perfecting the worshipers, Hebrews 10, 1 through 3. But now, we read, Jesus has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself, 9, verse 26. Jesus assumes the role of both the high priest and the sacrificial offering as he offers himself to God, making perfect those who draw near to God through him. Chapter 10, verse 14. Jesus' atoning sacrifice is perfect, that is, complete, absolute, optimal, unsurpassed, based on the nature of that sacrifice. If the blood of bulls and goats could effect ceremonial cleansing in the worship of God, how much more can the precious blood of Christ cleanse our hearts so that we might serve the living God? Hebrews 9.13-14 It was impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. That was but a shadow of the reality to come. Chapter 10, verses 1 and 4 But in Jesus that reality has now appeared, and by the sacrifice of himself once for all, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Chapter 10, verse 14. His perfect sacrifice obtains eternal redemption. 9, verse 12. It was not with perishable things that we were redeemed, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. 1 Peter 1, 19. In its perfection, Jesus' atoning sacrifice is also all-sufficient. Nothing is lacking from it, and we can add nothing to it. It is complete, fully efficacious, and all that is required to atone for our sin. It satisfies all the requirements of God's holiness and justice in providing the means of our salvation in its past, present, and future dimensions. Cross-reference 2 Timothy 1.9, 1 Corinthians 1.18, 1 Peter 1.5. For that reason, Jesus could say, it is finished. John 19.30 Letter A. 
Biblical Language of the Atonement Jesus' atoning death on the cross is the means by which God deals with our sin and the corruption, alienation, and the wrath of God which that sin engenders. This is the fact of the atonement. But how is this atoning work to be understood? The New Testament writers use rich and evocative language in seeking to expound the saving work of Christ on the cross with word pictures from various fields of human experience. These are by no means mutually exclusive, and each has something to contribute to our understanding of this profound event. As we have seen, the sacrificial system of the Old Testament temple provides an essential background for the understanding Christ's death. It depicts sin as defilement before God, which disqualifies us for worship. Christ's work is a cleansing that expiates or takes away our sin and so makes us acceptable in God's presence. Another way of understanding the atonement comes from the marketplace, and it pictures our salvation in terms of redemption in which we are bought out of our slavery to sin. This liberation comes at a great cost. We were captives to sin's power and under its merciless control. But by his death, Jesus ransoms us, buying us back with his precious blood. We have been at the same time set free from the devil's power and set under God's rule, for he is now our new master. A third approach invokes the image of a battlefield. In the cosmic war for the control of our souls, Jesus, as our champion, has defeated the demonic forces of evil and delivered us from this dominion. Jesus spoke of his ministry in terms of blinding the strong man so that one can then plunder his possessions. Cross-reference Matthew 12, verse 29. Paul echoes this imagery when he says, Having disarmed the powers and authorities, Christ made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Colossians 2.15 The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. John writes in 1 John 3.8, cross-reference also John 12.31, and Hebrews 2.14-15. Relationships within the family are also significant as a sphere of human experience which sheds light on the saving work of Christ. Jesus' death provides a means of reconciliation between estranged parties, bringing peace between them. Through Christ's death, we who were God's enemies can become adopted into God's family as his children and heirs of all of his riches. Romans 5, 10 through 11, 8, 15 through 17, Galatians 4, 4 through 5, and Titus 3, 6 through 7. Finally, and most fundamentally, the Bible uses the imagery of the law court to picture the accomplishment of the gospel. God is judge, the final moral authority before whom all must give an account. All sin is ultimately rebellion against his righteous rule, and the penalty of disobedience is death. Genesis 2, 16-17, Romans 6, 23. Because he is holy, 
God's necessary reaction to all that acts contrary to his will is wrath. God's wrath is not a capricious and irrational rage, as is often found in sinful human beings, but the pure and consistent response of a righteous and just God when confronting all that is evil in his creation. He hates sin with a holy hatred. Your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrong, the prophet Habakkuk declares of him. Or as we read in Nahum, the Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord takes vengeance and is filled with wrath. The Lord takes vengeance on his foes and maintains his wrath against his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. The Lord will not leave the guilty unpunished. Nahum 1, 2, and 3. The response of God to human sin is assumed in the Gospel of John. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. John three thirty six. In his magisterial exposition of the Gospel, in his letter to the Romans, Paul sets forth the revelation of the wrath of God as the central obstacle to be overcome. Chapter 1, verse 18, 2, 5, and 8. All humanity stands under the righteous judgment of God. Chapter 2, 2 through 3, and 3, 9 through 20. Whose just sentence is death. 132, 5:12, 6:23. But in Christ and through his atoning death, we are rescued from that condemnation. 3, 21 through 26, 8, 1, and 33 through 34. God as judge acts to justify those who believe in Christ. On the basis of their union with Christ, he declares that they are no longer under his judgment and are now righteous in his sight, members in good standing of his family becoming sons of Abraham by faith. Though we were by nature objects of God's wrath, Ephesians 2, 3, Paul argues in his letter to the Thessalonians that God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Thessalonians 5, 9. It is Christ alone who can rescue us from that divine wrath. 1 Thessalonians 1, 10. Letter B, Theological Views of the Atonement. Through history, various theological views have been proposed to make sense of these diverse biblical backgrounds. Some have stressed the subjective aspect of the work of Christ, that is, the effect that Christ's death has on our own moral state. The moral influence theory contends that Christ's death on the cross is the ultimate expression of God's love for us and that this should move us to respond to him in kind. Names often associated with this view include Pelagius, died in C. 424, Peter Abelard, 1079-1142, and Faustus Tsokinus, 1539-1604. This theory became popular among liberals in the last century. 
Another approach, also with a decidedly subjective dimension, emphasized the way in which God acts in the atonement to safeguard his moral rule of the universe. This governmental theory was propounded by the Dutch jurist Hugo Grotius in 1583-1645. through He contended that the death of Jesus was God's means of demonstrating the seriousness of sin and was appropriate to prevent the corruption of human morals. In this way, God upholds the authority of his law through the vicarious death of his son, but the emphasis is again on the subjective impact of Christ's death on human beings. A similar emphasis was found in a view of the atonement that was held by one early leader of the Evangelical Free Church, J.G. Prinzel, a notable teacher in the early Swedish mission movement, propounded first in Sweden by Paul Peter Waldenstrom in the late 19th century. This view taught that God had no need of reconciliation with man for human beings were not under his wrath. Atonement was necessary not to appease God, but to reconcile man, and only in that sense was Christ's death atoning. Certainly the death of Christ is the ultimate expression of God's love, and Paul declares it to be such. God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were sinners, Christ died for us, Romans 5, 8. Jesus' death shows how much God loved the world, John 3.16. We ought to respond to such love with repentance and faith. A failure to do so shows contempt for God's kindness, Romans 2.4. Further, in the life of Jesus is held up as a moral example to us, particularly as he responds to evil with patience humility, and love. Cross-reference Philippians 2, 5 through 8, and 1 Peter 2, 19 through 23. While the subjective views of the atonement stress the effect of Christ's work on our moral condition, they fail to account for the depth of human depravity or the reality of God's opposition to sin. They highlight Jesus' role of prophet revealing God to us rather than his role as priest. And while these perspectives convey truth about the power of the cross to affect us, they are sorely inadequate on their own. There must be a vital connection between the loving sacrifice of Christ's death and the situation of the sinner. Biblical scholar James Denny once observed in effect, that a man jumping off a pier yelling, I love you, world, before he sinks to the bottom, would be considered a misguided madman. But if he jumps off the pier to save someone who is drowning and gives his life in the process, he becomes a real hero. So Jesus' death must be more than a vague declaration of love. It must be an actual achievement. Thus, in contrast, the objective views of the atonement point to a real change in the spiritual realm, including God's posture towards us. One of the earliest 
objective perspectives on the atoning death of Christ emphasized Jesus' role as king and described it as a conquest over the powers of evil. Hebrews speaks of Christ sharing in our humanity so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. Hebrews 2.14-15 Though this view seeks to do justice to the New Testament battlefield imagery to describe the victorious effect of Christ's death and resurrection, it is insufficient as an explanation of his atoning work. It fails to spell out how the power of Satan was defeated, though crude imagery was suggested with Christ pictured as bait to lure an unsuspecting devil to bite the hook of the cross. Closely associated with this view was the notion of a liberating ransom. The image is graphic, but it is not clear to whom the price of redemption is paid, for certainly Satan has no lawful right over the human race. The most prominent and promising understanding of atonement builds upon the Bible's forensic or legal language of God as righteous judge. Though found throughout Christian history, this view was developed most clearly by Anselm of Canterbury, 1033-1109. In his book, Why Did God Become Man? He stressed the idea of satisfaction and vicarious sacrifice. Essentially, Anselm contended that moral offense entails a moral debt which must be paid. Therefore, those who sin against God owe him either their own punishment or some restitution or satisfaction for their transgression of his law. God's justice demands such payment, but human beings cannot make satisfaction since they are guilty and are deserving of God's punishment. Satisfaction can be made only by one who is innocent, so God himself makes this possible by the incarnation of Jesus Christ. The God-man, Jesus Christ, is under no obligation to die since he is sinless, but he willingly offers himself as the satisfaction for human sin. Atonement is thus seen as a payment of human debt to God by a substitute which God himself provides. Anselm's approach has been subject to criticism, chiefly in the way it seems to reduce God's actions to logic, providing a rationalistic explanation of Christ's atoning work, and in the way he relied upon medieval notions of honor, reflecting the feudal society of his day. However, Later proponents of this satisfaction model included Thomas Aquinas and the 16th century reformers modified Anselm's view to meet these objections. Their efforts resulted in an approach that best captures the heart of the biblical teaching of Christ's atonement, while embracing the other views as well, the notion of penal substitution. Number one, Jesus, our substitute. Penal substitution. When we refer in our statement to Jesus as our substitute, 
we have particularly in mind the forensic model of the atonement known as penal substitution. Jesus, the righteous one, died in our place, paying the penalty that we deserved, thus satisfying God's justice. God's wrath is thereby appeased, reconciling sinners to a holy God, such that his forgiveness does not compromise his holiness. This process is God-initiated and is, from beginning to end, the expression of God's love and grace. This view fit well with the renewed interest in the doctrine of justification at the time of the Reformation, particularly as it was understood by Martin Luther from Paul's letter to the Romans. The pressing question in Luther's mind was how a sinner could be made right with God. Paul's words in Romans 1, 18 through 3:20 seem to leave no doubt that all of humanity lay under the divine wrath. God operates with strict retributive justice, rendering to each person according to what he has done. Chapter 2, verse 6. With trouble and distress for every human being who does evil, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile, but glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. Chapter 2, 9 through 10. But because Paul concludes that all have sinned, chapter 3, verse 23, that there is no one righteous, not even one, 3.10, and that on the day of judgment, every mouth will be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God, 3.19. Whatever answer the gospel gives as a means of escape must somehow deal with the righteous wrath of God, which sinful human beings deserve. For this reason, the critical passage, Romans 3, 21 through 26, was understood among the Reformers to support the notion of satisfaction, a key element of Anselm's doctrine. God can maintain his own justice in justifying sinners only if that justice is satisfied by the righteous death of another. Thus, in the death of Jesus, God substituted himself, thereby demonstrating his own righteousness. In 325, Jesus is the hilasterion, the propitiating sacrifice, which turns away the righteous wrath of God towards sinners, cross-reference 5.9. Bringing reconciliation, 5, 1, and 10, Calvin writes, if the effect of his shedding of blood is that our sins are not imputed to us, it follows that God's judgment was satisfied by that price. The notion of penal substitution is found elsewhere in the New Testament as well. Fundamental is the idea that the righteous one dies in the place of the unrighteous, as expressed by Peter. For Christ also suffered four sins once for all the righteous for the unrighteous, in order to bring you to God. 1 Peter 3.18 Paul expresses this exchange in 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 
Or again, in his letter to the Galatians, the apostle can declare that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Galatians 3.13 Jesus acts for us on our behalf and in our place. He is a righteous substitute who bears our penalty. This conception of the death of Jesus would not have come naturally to the first disciples. At first, when they saw their beloved master hanging on a Roman cross, they were confused and disheartened. They had thought he was their Messiah, the anointed one of God, who would lead them into the glory of the kingdom of God. But on the cross he died as a common criminal, bearing the curse of God. With his resurrection, however, their view of his death changed. In his vindication by God, they realized that Jesus was, in fact, the Christ, and that it was not for his own sin that he had died, but for theirs. The prophet Isaiah had declared it so well. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows, yet we consider him stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we were healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Isaiah 53, 4-6 They understood Jesus' death to be a vicarious sacrifice, a penal substitution in which he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. 1 Peter 2, 24 This understanding of vicarious suffering was built into the sacrificial system of the Old Testament. Sacrifice was needed in Israel as a remedy for sin. Cross-reference Leviticus 5, 6. The one bringing the sacrifice was to lay his hands on the animal as a sign of the transfer of sin to the victim so that it might be accepted on his behalf. The animal was then slain and its blood was sprinkled on the altar. The effect of the offering was the remission of sin and the declaration of forgiveness. Cross-reference Leviticus 1, 4, 4, 20, 26, and 31 and chapter 6, verse 7. The offering provided cleansing from sin, but it did so in a way that was based on the propitiation of God's wrath through the vicarious death of another. Those sacrifices, we are told in Hebrews, have no real efficacy in dealing with sin. Hebrews ten eleven. They were but a shadow of the reality that was to come. But now Christ has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Hebrews 9.26 Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many people. Hebrews 9.28 And by one sacrifice he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Hebrews 10.14 one might say that this principle of substitution lies at the heart of both sin and salvation. As John Stott puts it, 
The essence of sin is man substituting himself for God, while the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. Man asserts himself against God and puts himself where only God deserves to be. God sacrifices himself for man and puts himself where only man deserves to be. Man claims prerogatives which belong to God alone. God accepts penalties which belong to man alone. This doctrine of penal substitution is represented in standard documents of the Reformation. The Lutheran Augsburg Confession, 1530, states that Christ was crucified, died, and was buried in order to be a sacrifice, not only for original sin, but also for all other sins and to propitiate God's wrath. The Heidelberg Catechism, 1563, explains the suffering of Christ in this way. Throughout his life on earth, but especially at the end of it, he bore in body and soul the wrath of God against the sin of the whole human race, so that by his suffering, as the only expiatory sacrifice, he might redeem our body and soul from everlasting damnation and might obtain for us God's grace, righteousness, and eternal life. Article 31 of the Anglican 39 Articles in 1571 declares, The offering of Christ once made is the perfect redemption, propitiation, and satisfaction for all the sins of the whole world, both original and actual. And there is no other satisfaction for sin but that alone. Later doctrinal statements representing various theological traditions also reinforce this understanding of atonement. The Reformed Westminster Confession of Faith from 1646 affirms, The Lord Jesus, by his perfect obedience and sacrifice of himself, which he, through the eternal Spirit, once offered up unto God, hath fully satisfied the justice of his Father. This is echoed in the most recent Wesleyan Confession of Faith and the Evangelical United Brethren Church, 1963. The offering of Christ freely made on the cross is the perfect and sufficient sacrifice for the sins of the whole world, redeeming man from all sin so that no other satisfaction is required. Penal substitution is not stated explicitly in our statement of faith, but it is clearly there. Jesus is declared to be our substitute and the perfect and all-sufficient sacrifice for our sins on the cross saves us from the wrath of God. While a few may not have held this view at one point in our history, it is certainly embraced by the free church today and is considered critical to understanding Christ's atoning work. Objections to this view. The understanding of the atoning death of Christ in terms of penal substitution has not been without its detractors, both ancient and modern. Frequently, however, objections fail to consider the work of Christ in the light of his person, either misunderstanding his relationship to God the Father or to humanity. We will consider three common objections 
looking first at an obvious complaint that points us to a mystery at the heart of God. One might ask, is it even coherent to contend that God in his love can satisfy his own wrath against human sin? That he can, as expressed by Augustine, love us even while he hates us? With Calvin, we may recognize this apparent contradiction of God, who in love appeases his own wrath. But we may also affirm with Calvin that this is simply the way the scripture speaks. Cross-reference Romans 5.10, Galatians 3.10 and 13, and Colossians 1.21-22. It may be, he suggests, that expressions of this sort have been accommodated to our capacity that we may better understand how miserable and ruinous our condition is apart from Christ. Or, with Augustine, we may understand the wrath and love of God operating at different levels and in different ways. God knew at once both how in each of us to hate what we had done in our sin and to love what he had done in his creation. God's wrath arises from his holiness in response to human rebellion, but his love is from eternity as an intrinsic perfection of his nature and is not caused by the character of the one loved. Thus, these need not be logically incompatible, though their connection may remain a mystery. We are compelled by the teaching of Scripture to hold both of these together. A second objection to penal substitution questions the goodness of God. In a caricature, God the Father is pictured as the vindictive agent of wrath who must be cajoled into acting graciously towards his human subjects. The Son of God takes the abusive punishment we deserve and so wins the goodwill of a begrudging God. Fundamentally, this grotesque representation misunderstands the unity of the triune God. The death of Christ on the cross is not the affliction of punishment by the Father upon the eternal Son, that is, apart from his humanity, much less upon a mere human being. Jesus' death on the cross is truly an action of God upon himself. God is both the subject and the object of atonement. That atoning work of God is entirely self-initiated and self-inflicted. It is truly an act of self-substitution. God was, in Christ, reconciling the world to himself. 2 Corinthians 5.19 this was not as an act necessitated by some cosmic logic, but freely chosen as an act of holy love. A proper conception of penal substitution insists that there are not three parties in the atonement. There are but two, God in Christ and humanity. Immediately, this separates the atoning death of Jesus from any pagan notion of worshippers offering their own sacrifices to appease an angry God. Here, God himself offers the sacrifice. Moreover, the propitiatory atonement which God offers provides no legitimation for abuse in human relationships, as some accuse. 
On the cross, the triune God acts upon himself. The Father and Son are one in purpose, acting as one divine subject in this act of divine self-substitution. God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. A third common objection to penal substitution questions the morality of such a transaction. How can one person take on the punishment of another? Is this just a legal fiction? Here we find an inadequate appreciation of Christ's person in his identification with humanity. Jesus Christ is not only truly God, he is also truly man. As Paul affirms, there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. 1 Timothy 2, 5-6 Christ can act as our substitute only because he has first united himself with us as our representative, a subject which merits further attention and to which we now turn. Number two, Jesus, our representative, union with Christ. In our modern Western world, we think in individualistic terms, which often deny real social solidarities, such as nation, tribe, and family. Two institutions in Israel demanded such solidarity of the leader as a representative of his people, the role of high priest and of king. These show us how the actions of one can affect the many. In offering sacrifices on behalf of the nation, for example, the actions of the high priest affected those he represented before God. Hebrew speaks often of Jesus in that position and emphasizes his right to exercise that role. He had to be made like his brothers in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Hebrews 2.17 In bringing many sons to glory, Jesus shares in their suffering. He and they are of the same family, and he is not ashamed to call them brothers. Hebrews 2.10-11 Jesus can represent his people such that he may bear their sins in the offering of himself. Regarding the representative role of kingship in Israel, the law of Moses demanded that the king of Israel be chosen from among your brothers, Deuteronomy 17.15, and that his subjects could be said to have a share in him, cross-reference 2 Samuel 20, verse 1. The king could represent the people, either bringing them God's blessing or involving them in God's curse. Cross-reference 2 Samuel 24, 1-25. Jesus, as Israel's Messiah, identifies himself with his people. Cross-reference Matthew three thirteen through 15 And dies as their king. Cross-reference Matthew twenty seven thirty seven. In this way, he saves his people from their sins. Matthew one twenty one. Finally, just as Paul could speak of our solidarity with Adam as our representative head, so it is with Christ. 
cross-reference Romans 5, 12 through 21. Each acts in a way that affects those bound up with them. In our union with Adam by nature, his sin brings death to us. In our union with Christ by faith, his obedience brings us righteousness and life. These two are the great representative figures of the human race. Because of Jesus' union with us in his humanity as the second Adam, as the messianic king, and as our great high priest, he is able to represent us before God. He bears our sin, and in our union with him, we receive his righteousness. As those in Christ, we are now children of God and co-heirs with Christ. This is no legal fiction, for he has effected a real change in our condition before God. In his atoning death, Jesus acts in our stead and on our behalf. As our substitute, he does what we could never do for ourselves. He bears our sin and judgment, and he takes it away. As our representative, he acts on our behalf in such a way as to involve us in what he has done. Jesus goes to his death alone, but he calls us to take up our cross and follow him in the new life that is ours by virtue of our union with him. This new life will be discussed further in Article 6 when we consider the work of the Holy Spirit in applying the finished work of Christ to our lives. Roman numeral 3, Christ's victorious resurrection, his victory and ours. The cross of Christ cannot be considered apart from his resurrection from the dead. In his faithfulness to the will of his Father, Jesus took on the role of the suffering servant, bearing the sins of his people. And as a consequence of that faithfulness, God raised him from the grave and gave him the name above every name. Cross-reference Philippians 2, 5-11. through Jesus' resurrection both vindicated his work and demonstrates his victory. And as those in union with him by faith, we benefit from that work and that victory becomes ours. Letter A. Jesus' vindication and victory. In the first public proclamation of Jesus' resurrection, Peter declared to the Pentecost crowd in Jerusalem, Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Acts 2.36 Jesus had been condemned by the human court, both Jewish and Roman, but by an act of divine power, that verdict was overturned. In raising him from the dead, God declared him to be the Son of God in power. Romans 1.4 Exalting him to a position of all authority. Matthew 28.18 He was indeed the true King of Israel. And the teaching on the exaltation of the humble in the kingdom of God is realized. In his innocent suffering, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly, 1 Peter 2.23. And that faith was honored. God would not abandon his Holy One to the grave, Acts 2.31. 
citing Psalm 16.27. But not only did the resurrection of Jesus validate his person, it also vindicated his work. It demonstrated that it was not for his own sin that he died, but for the sin of his people, as in Isaiah 53.4. He had accomplished his mission and God rewarded his vicarious suffering, just as the scripture predicted. Cross-reference Isaiah 53, 11-12, Luke 24, 26, and Acts 26, 22. If Christ has not been raised, Paul says, our faith is futile, and we are still in our sins, subject to God's condemnation. 1 Corinthians fifteen seventeen. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. Verse 20. His atoning sacrifice was acceptable to God, and it was effective in taking away our sin. Therefore, Paul can say that Christ was handed over to death for our trespasses and was raised for or because of our justification. Romans 4.25 The cross appeared to signal the victory of evil. The enemies of Jesus mocked this would-be Messiah hanging on a cross like a common criminal. God had come in the flesh to do battle with evil, but it appeared Satan had won. Or had he? The empty tomb turned the tables. What appeared to be total defeat was transformed into a glorious triumph. Jesus' resurrection is the divine testimony to his victory over the forces of evil. Ephesians 1, 19-22, Philippians 2, 9-11, and 1 Peter 3, 21-22, and Romans 8, 37-39. And over death itself, 2 Timothy 1, 10. God raised him up, Peter declared, having freed him from death, because it was impossible for him to be held in its power, Acts 2.24 The sting of death is gone, and by the resurrection of Jesus we now have assurance of victory over it. 1 Corinthians 15.55-56 and 1 Corinthians 6.14, 2 Corinthians 4.14 Christ is victorious over the forces of evil, and that victory has its foundation in his substitutionary death and its proof in his glorious resurrection. B. Our great hope. The meaning of Christ's resurrection cannot be limited to his own experience of vindication and victory. Because we are united with him as our representative head, his resurrection involves us. Paul speaks of Jesus' resurrection as the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. 1 Corinthians 15.20 he was the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead. Colossians 1.18, so also Revelation 1.5. Resurrection from the dead, an end-of-the-world event, has broken into the midst of the present age, and Jesus Christ is the first of those who are to follow. Acts 26.23 Though we must wait until the end of his glorious return, we can be assured that when he comes, we shall be like him. 1 Corinthians 15.23, Philippians 3.20-21, and 1 John 
The spoiled image of God in our fallenness will be restored when we are fully conformed to the image of Christ and are finally glorified in our resurrection bodies. Romans 8.29 and Philippians 3.20-21 And even creation itself, which has been subjected to frustration, will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. Romans 8.19-22 For this reason, the resurrection of Jesus is our great hope. Cross-reference. 1 Peter 1, 3-4. But his resurrection also has a significant implication for the present. In union with Christ, we are already raised with him and seated with him in the heavenly realms. Colossians 3, 1 and Ephesians 2, 6. His righteousness before God is now ours, reckoned or imputed to us by virtue of our union with Christ. Cross-reference Philippians 3, 9. We are already partakers of this new and risen life. Romans 6, 4, Ephesians 2, 5, and 1 John 5, 12. Liberated from our captivity to sin, Romans 6, 6 through 7. And by the Holy Spirit, we have, even now, tasted the powers of the coming age. Hebrews 6, 5. The power of the demonic world, whether experienced explicitly or more covertly, has been broken by Jesus' victory. Colossians 2.15 He stands as Lord of all. Christ's glorious resurrection has inaugurated that new age, and we now live in an interim period experiencing something of its power while still awaiting its fulfillment when Christ returns. This already and not yet existence means that we have been saved in hope. Romans 8.24 Roman numeral 4. Conclusion. The only ground for salvation. Who can stand before a holy God? Certainly not sinful human beings, corrupted by sin, alienated from God and under his wrath. We are helpless and hopeless apart from the grace of God. But we have a gospel message. For what I have received, I pass on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scripture, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. 1 Corinthians fifteen three through 4 By this gospel you are saved. 15.2 in the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ, God has done for us what we could never have done for ourselves. He has accomplished his gracious purpose by entering into our world himself in the person of his son, fulfilling his own promise of blessing. He has joined our humanity to himself so that in Christ the judge could take the place of those who are judged. On the cross, Jesus atoned for our sins, bearing its punishment in our stead. There was displayed all at once the fire of God's holiness, the darkness of our sin, and the depth of God's gracious love. There, in a mysterious way, God's wrath and mercy met perfectly. And on the third day, when he raised Jesus from the grave, 
God vindicated his son and brought victory over sin and death. God need not have saved anyone, but in his holy love, having purposed from eternity to redeem a people for himself, he determined to save us through the work of his son. Jesus prayed, my father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. In Matthew twenty six thirty nine, in the wisdom of God, it was not possible any other way. Christ's atoning death and victorious resurrection constitute the only ground for our salvation. Thank you for listening to this episode of the EFCA Theology Podcast. You can find more episodes by searching EFCA Theology Podcast in any podcast app or on the web at efca.org slash podcast.